Thank you, Josh. So beautiful. Indeed, our Lord is beautiful. We've, our family's been blessed this summer. I don't know if everybody knows this, but um, Josh is so quiet and kind of blends in here, but Josh has been staying with us for this summer, and um, his last day with us will be Friday, and our family will be sad. He's been a great addition to our family. Our kids have played many games of Exploding Kittens and Uno and Millborn and lots of uh, I know that sounds pretty bad, but it's actually a fun game. It's, <laughs> but um, lots of card games, lots of music. Um, it's been great to ha- have him playing uh, the piano at our house. Uh, and in fact, I was upstairs, I think it was yesterday or maybe maybe Friday, and I was hearing something I thought was coming from the TV, but it was the piano. Um, Josh can play the Super Mario Brothers theme song really, really well. <laughs> and so he's got multiple talents. Um, so we are, we are going to miss him. Um, but he, uh, he is now the new brother Stephen never knew he had. And uh, they've enjoyed one another and getting to know him. We look forward to keeping in touch with him and, and uh, praying for him and for his family back in North Carolina. His dad, uh, in case you don't know, is a Baptist pastor of a small church there. And that's how we originally contacted. So we'll be praying for... What's the name of the church there? Covenant Reformed Baptist Church. And so uh, we need to be praying for them as they persevere in ministry. Well, I hope you are doing well this morning. Hope you are rested and refreshed. I must admit, I'm a bit tired. Uh, Stephen and I, Stephen Herschel and I, did a 5K yesterday, <clears throat> and we really hadn't trained a whole lot for it. And so we are re- learning the importance of training for races. But it was the first first 5K that I've ever done in the, in the evening. And now I know why you do races in the morning, and because you don't eat supper before you uh, run 3.1 miles. And so it wasn't long into the race before he took off, and I basically said, see you later, I'll see you at the finish line. And so he was a good two or three minutes in front of me, um, and we the race was downtown in Big Spring Park, which is a beautiful area, but uh, we did this this uh, route where you run the, the, the area three times in a circle. And so after the second lap, I thought I was done. And so uh, there was a lady there that was saying, if this is your first or second lap, keep going to the left. If this is your third, keep straight to the finish. I was tempted to say, this is my third, and just keep going to the finish. <laughs> but uh, I went ahead and did the third lap. And that third lap was pretty brutal, but made it to the end. And whenever I run, um, I always think of a couple things. One, thankful that God has given me the ability to do so. But second, um, it's always a great picture of perseverance and just running to the finish line. And so either jogging, walking, um, barely making it to the finish line, or running with full steam ahead, just focusing on the finish line. I'm so thankful for Tim reading from Hebrews 12. He didn't know that I was going to actually read from Hebrews 12 in uh, the sermon today, which is okay. We, you know, it's good to read scripture twice. But uh, in Hebrews 12, I know it's a favorite of Brother Paul Crouch as well. Is it says we are to look to Jesus. He is the author. He is the perfecter of our faith. And so, as we run the race as believers, we must seek Christ. We must follow Him in all things. So we are going to do that today as we look at the Gospel of Matthew again. 
We are going to pick up the pace in the weeks ahead, but again today we're just going to look at one chapter, actually a chapter and a half. I'm going to look back at chapter 4. As we remember what took place in chapter 4, we saw the temptations of Jesus, how he was tempted in numerous ways. Each of us could speak about trials and temptation and difficulties and persevering through them. And so Jesus um, persevered. He overcame. He conquered the devil and he defeated the devil and he told the devil, you shall worship the Lord your God only, and him only shall you serve. But then afterwards, we see Jesus continuing his ministry or beginning his proper ministry, his formal ministry. In fact, look with me in verse 17 of chapter 4. It says, from that time, this is Matthew's indicator or transition marker, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This should sound familiar. You've probably heard this before. Who, do, who have you heard this from before? John the Baptist. That's right. And so Jesus is continuing what John the Baptist says is he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Just like John the Baptist, he's focusing on repentance. Just like John the Baptist, he's focusing on the kingdom of God. And so he calls the people to, he calls his disciples. And we see this in verses 18 through 22, and he uses two key words. What are those two key words he uses when he calls his disciples? Follow me. Follow me. Amen. Thank you, Brother Jim. He says, follow me. There was no option. Well, I guess in a sense there was, but here there's no option as they are leaving all that they have, leaving their occupations, leaving their homes, leaving their families, and following Jesus. And so indeed, that is what they do. Then at the end of chapter 4, we see Jesus ministering to, as your Bible might say, great crowds, many people. Many people came around to hear this man, Jesus. And it says in verse 23, 24, and 25, he is teaching, he is proclaiming, and he is healing. And so what is he teaching? What is he proclaiming? Healing is pretty clear. He's healing those with various diseases and sicknesses, those who are oppressed by the demons. But what is he proclaiming? We see that he is proclaiming the kingdom of God. As I was talking with a brother, a member of this church, we must remember the kingdom of God is not separate from the gospel. It is integral or integral and central to the gospel. And we see here in this section, Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is what Jesus preached because this idea of a kingdom was not something new. It is at hand because the time is for it to be fulfilled. Well, who is doing the fulfilling? We see here in this passage, Jesus, the Messiah. So he has come proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom because the time is at hand for it to be fulfilled. I think I've quoted Graham Goldsworthy before, or I know have. I'm not sure if I've quoted this particular quote. Goldsworthy says, The unavoidable conclusion from the New Testament evidence is that the gospel fulfills the Old Testament hope of the coming of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. Let me repeat that again. It's God's people in God's place under God's rule. Jesus is central to the kingdom of God because he is the true people of God, the true kingly sphere, and the true rule of God. So this is what Jesus is teaching and preaching and proclaiming, that the kingdom is at hand. So now, let us look at chapter 5. 
I debated whether or not to read the whole thing, but we have time, and I think it's good for us to read the whole thing. So let us stand as we read and honor the preaching and hearing of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, Be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than, your, than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body Go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman 
commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. You may be seated. Let us pray together. Gracious Father, we see in your word difficult commands, hard sayings, challenging thoughts. Father, I pray that you will call us to holiness and call us to righteousness as we seek you. Lord, even as we look upon what you have done in creation, you bring the sun to rise in the morning and you bring rain on the crops of both the believers and unbelievers. So, Father, we see your common grace. Lord, we see your special specific grace to us as believers. And so, Father, we long to know you, and we long to trust you, and we long to worship you. And so, Father, we cannot love our enemies. We cannot control our anger. We cannot control wandering eyes if we seek to do things in our own strength. So, Father, I pray that we will turn to you. We will repent of sins. We will seek your face, and we will follow you. Because, Lord, we know that you are good. And Father, I pray that we will seek you in all that we do. Lord, your word says, blessed are those, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Father, I think all too often we are dependent upon ourselves. We are dependent upon who we are and what we can do, what we control, what we cannot control, that we are smarter, that we are brighter, that we are richer than the rest. And so, Father, humble us so that we might seek you. Lord, let us know that we are to be dependent upon you in all things. Father, I pray that we will see your kingdom has come and your kingdom is yet coming. And so, Lord, if we are your people, then you will rule over us. Father, let us not fight against your rule, but let us submit willingly and joyfully to your righteous rule, knowing that you are a good, 
benevolent Father and King. So Lord, lead us by your righteous right hand. And Lord, teach us to love who you are and to love what you do. Father, I thank you for this chapter. And Lord, we are not going to be able to understand all of these things. But Lord, my main goal is to glorify you. So Lord, I pray that we will glorify you together as we trust you and as we obey you. Lord, lead us by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay. Well, we have a lot to talk about this morning. Obviously, we're not going to get through every section, every question in your mind about this chapter will probably not be answered. Um, but we will try to go through some of the highlights, and I've picked particular sections to go through. At first, I want us to look at the first Beatitudes, the first 12 verses. You've heard these Beatitudes before. Beatitude comes from a Latin word which means blessed or happy. And when I think about these first first 11 or 12 verses, I always think about the Beatitudes being beautiful attitudes. I don't know why, it just kind of clicks in my mind. These are beautiful attitudes. This is a beautiful thing as we see the character of individuals in these opening 12 verses who seek the Lord. We'll see at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Well, in these Beatitudes, these are people who are seeking the Lord. They are repenting over sin. They're not just remorseful, but they're repenting over sin. They're hungering for righteousness. They're promoting peace, and they're persevering when they are persecuted. In all of these Beatitudes, we see Christ. We see Christ who is dependent upon His Father, who is seeking the Father's will, who is pure in heart, who is a peacemaker, who is persecuted. In all of these Beatitudes, we see Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And so we must learn that as we look at these principles that we are not perfect, we will not follow them all together, but we do see these principles, these Beatitudes are different than the way the world operates. The world does not operate in this way, but those who follow Christ should. Also, as we look at these first 12 verses, we see Christians not only believe certain truths, but those truths impact the way in which we live. Our faith impacts the way in which we live. J.C. Ryle says this, Christianity is eminently a practical religion. Sound doctrine is at its root, or is, is its root and foundation, but holy living should always be its fruit. And if we want to know what, I'm not sure, a joy, true living, I'm not sure what that is, true living is, let us often think about who Jesus calls blessed. So we see here that our doctrine impacts the way we live. So each of these verses could be a sermon in and of themselves, but I wanted to focus on one verse this morning, verse 8. What does verse 8 say? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That is a wonderful, powerful verse. This is blessed are the pure in heart, not only that they will know God, blessed are the pure in heart, not only will they speak to God, but it says that they will see God. Those of us who know the Old Testament commands, this is an amazing thing to see God, to see Him face to face. This is an amazing thing. As you look at this verse, as you hear this verse, maybe different things come to mind, but the audience that Jesus spoke to was Jewish, mostly Jewish, and more than likely as they heard this verse, blessed are the pure in heart, 
they most likely thought back to ritual purity. They thought about the outer man, the outer woman. How am I clean before God? But Jesus is talking not about the outer man. He's talking about the inner man, the pure in heart. So the Jews, they emphasized ritual purity with ceremonial cleansing. Jesus here focuses on the purity of our hearts and our souls. I can't, you can't, wash yourselves thoroughly enough to cleanse yourselves from your sin. But God can. So here in this verse, verse 8, we are reminded the pure in heart are those who have had their hearts cleansed. So Jesus is teaching the Jews and he's teaching us today to not aim merely at outward correctness or rightness, but inner holiness. Inner holiness. Makes me think of 1 Samuel 16. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. We read this in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness, uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So we need our hearts cleansed. We need our hearts changed. And when we do, Scripture says, we will seek the Lord. We will obey the Lord. So again, we need hearts that are changed. And so Jesus emphasizes, Ezekiel emphasizes that When our heart is changed, what will we do? We will seek the Lord. We will honor the Lord. And how do we seek the Lord? How do we honor the Lord? One of the ways is by obeying the Lord. We will obey Him in all that we do. In fact, throughout this section, again, it's always refreshing, even as you read a chapter, a section of Scripture, you think, oh, I've read this a thousand times. I know this a thousand times. It's always amazing. God always opens your eyes to something new. And as I was reading chapter 5, I never thought about the theme of obedience coming out from this section. But Jesus emphasizes the one who seeks the Lord will obey the Lord. Even in the next section, in verses 13 through 16, maybe it's, maybe it's because of uh, too many youth retreats, I don't know, but I kind of get this idea of being the light of the world and having this utopian idea. But verses 13 through 16 is not about having cool t-shirts or bumper stickers. He's telling us that we, as we are the light of the world, as God has changed our hearts, as light is in our hearts, that light will impact the way we live. It will impact what we do. I say that because of what we see in verse 16. He says, let your light shine before others. It's not like, okay, rise up in the morning, show others you're a Christian, now go back to your closet the rest of the day. No, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. They will see your actions, your obedience, your good works, and what will happen? They will give glory to God. They will give glory to God to your Father who is in heaven. So when our hearts have been changed, our actions have been changed. Works sometimes get a bad reputation within Baptist or evangelical circles, but we see that genuine belief produces good works. Ephesians 2, James 2, 
I'm sure there's another two in there somewhere. These, the genuine belief produces genuine good works. So we see again the, the theme of obedience. Well, we see it again in verses 17 through 20. Look with me in chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. The theme of obedience is emphasized as Jesus fulfills the law. He obeys the commandments. He teaches us to follow in obedience as he fulfills the law and the prophets. What is Luke 24 says, all the law, all that Moses taught, all the prophets are pointing us to Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the one who has come to reign and rule, as the one we are to look to, the perfect, obedient son. He fulfills the law here. So the predictions, the promises point to Jesus in general, but he also fulfills them in particular. You can imagine the scene here as he's talking to Jews, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, thinking that they are the righteous ones. And Jesus says, I'm not throwing the Old Testament, the Old Covenant away. I'm not doing that. And so if you are of your father Abraham, know that I am of Abraham as well. In fact, John 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am. But he says, I have come to fulfill the law. I have come to fulfill the prophets. So Jesus teaches them, he teaches the us, we're not to emulate the scribes and the Pharisees. We're not to emulate rules and regulations just for obeying them in and of themselves. But rather, we must see that we are to trust God and trust in Christ. Look with me in the next section, verses 21 through 26. I want to emphasize two last sections, spend a little bit more time on them. Verses 21 through 26, Jesus, again, he's not throwing away the Old Testament, throwing away the Old Testament law, but he's rather amplifying it. He amplifies the laws who thought that they were doing okay, thought that they had the passing grade on the test. Well, I'm doing pretty good here. Jesus repeatedly says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, so he's not changing it, he's confirming it, what was said above old is true, but he says, he says, I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So he's taking the command, it's like he's putting a magnifying glass on top of it. We're going to study this a little bit more in depth. I want to apply this to your hearts. So he applies this command, he applies the sixth commandment, which is, you shall not murder. You can only imagine, as he's beginning his words and saying, you have heard that you shall not murder. Someone says, oh, I, I obeyed that one. Hold your, hold your thoughts till I'm done. I'm not quite done here, Jesus. He says, Jesus affirms the command and he corrects any misunderstanding regarding the command by telling us, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He just told us earlier in the first part of verse 21, whoever murders is liable to judgment. So again, if you're doing this, uh, cross, crossing out what is, what two, the, two, if you're canceling out the two things that are, that are equal to one another, we see that they're both liable to judgment. I think I messed up saying that, but you know what I meant. Uh, whoever murders and whoever is angry will be liable to judgment. So this is a serious offense. Jesus connects the seriousness of murder with hearts that are full of anger. 
But this isn't just a New Testament command. Um, I think about even the story of Jonah. One of my uh, favorite parts is at the end. After Jonah goes and does what he does and tells the Ninevites to repent and to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then he has his pity party and he sulks and says, man, I, I did it. I didn't want to do it. And what does God tell Jonah? Do you do well to be angry? How's that working out for you? Not well. And so the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament and we see the seriousness of anger, whether it's in Jonah's life or whether it's in our own lives. We must see the believer in Christ is not exempt from anger. You and I are not exempt from anger. If that makes you angry, it proves my point, that we are not exempt from anger. The Apostle Paul exhorts believers to get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, and brawling, and slander, and along with every form of malice. So we must see the seriousness of anger. And it's not something, this is, this was new, this was helpful to me. It's not something that we have. Well, I've, I have anger. I have anger issues. My name is Steve and I'm an angeraholic. Or, no, it's, it's not something that we have, but rather it's something that we do. Our anger is a response against something or someone. Listen to what Robert Jones points out. He's a counselor. He says, our anger does not exist in a vacuum. Anger reacts against some provocation. We must not say, he made me angry, or I was angry because my car broke down. When we do those things, what are we saying? We're saying, he, well, I don't want to point to you, Josh. He... (laughs) made me angry, or the car made me angry. We're, we're just like Adam and Eve, blame shifting. That's the problem. That's the problem. Dare I say, I'm the problem. James says, it's our, it's our motives, it's our hearts is the problem. So when we exhibit anger, it involves a negative moral judgment that we make. You could call anger a moral emotion. Anger protests, what you did was wrong. That's what we are saying when we're angry. What you did was wrong against me. We say that action is unjust. We say this must stop. Now, even as you hear those words, you say, well, there are times when you can say that against particular abortion. You know, this must stop. So there is a righteous anger, and I don't want to negate that, but there's many times when we throw things into the corner of righteous anger when it's not. So we have to be careful in making that excuse. Far too often our anger is sinful and hurtful. The Proverbs speak often about this. I want to just point out a couple. Proverbs 12, verse 18, we, we see what anger does. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. That imagery is pretty violent. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. And we see in Proverbs 15, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And then in Proverbs 29, it says, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. So we see, again, anger must not be tolerated. That doesn't mean that we won't commit the sin of anger, but it does mean that if we are Christians, we will repent of it. I believe a Christian can commit any sin, but if he is a true Christian, a true believer, he will repent of it. 
And so anger must not be tolerated, but it must be repented of. I do want to recognize how anger can become a deep-rooted problem as habits form. We can seem to think, well, our anger is uncontrollable because I've, I've learned it from this person or I've learned it from this situation. I've, I'm a product of my environment. No, we can't say those things. That's why I encourage you to put together a temptation plan, which includes prayer and scripture. And you hear me beating this drum again. Dennis hears me beat this all the time. Walking with people in community. This is important about walking with people in community as we put to death the deeds and the sins of the body. So yes, pray. Yes, read your scripture. But yes, walk with people who are believers, who listen to you, who counsel you and encourage you during every difficult moment in your journey to be self-controlled. We need people who will remind us of what is the truth. Okay, we are flying through this chapter, I know, but let's go look at one last section. Verses 27 through 30. These, these connect from verses 31 and 32, and 31 and 32 are really a sermon in and of themselves, so we might look at those later. But verses 27 through 30, we see another what the world might call respectable sins. Like, okay, greed, anger, now lust. What does Jesus do? Just like he did, he emphasizes a command, this time the seventh commandment of adultery. Adultery, as you know, is a serious offense against one's spouse, but first, against God. Every sin, first and foremost, is against God. And we see that God created marriage, and marriage is not to be mocked, and adultery ravages homes all across America. And I hesitate to even say this, but both unbelieving and even believing homes together. So Jesus emphasizes the importance of obeying the commands in this particular one, the seventh command. But again, he takes it a step further. He clarifies and he amplifies the command. He says, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, Jesus helps us put the mirror, so to speak, in front of our hearts. Jesus is speaking most specifically to men who struggle with lust, but lust is not only a common problem for men. Both men and women struggle with this issue. It just appears in different ways. Lust has become a respectable sin by some as we seek to justify justify it by saying, well, we all struggle with lust. Who doesn't struggle with lust? That doesn't mean that we continue in sin. Jesus has some strong words for us if we flippantly dismiss our struggles with lust. What does he say to us? He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out, tear it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better you to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. So Jesus is saying, are you serious about repenting of sin? Are you serious about seeking God and knowing God? If you are, then you will take serious, radical measures. Here's Hebrews 12 again, which Tim read earlier. Hebrews 12 says, Consider Him. Remember Jesus, the one who is your Savior and Lord? 
He doesn't just save you from sins. You follow him. You imitate him. You walk after him. He's the one who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We do grow weary or faint-hearted, but don't because remember who Christ is. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So there's lots of implications that we could speak about this, but what I want you to hear this morning is that we must get serious about our sin. Even when the culture says, it's okay, it's not serious, everybody struggles. Well, we read later in Hebrews 12, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So we must see our sin as something to repent of. Romans 8 says, he died so that we might put to death the deeds of the body. Hear this quote from Heath Lambert in a, in a phenomenal book called Finally Free. He says, Employing radical measures is the path to life, while indulging sin is the path to hell. God does not forbid sexual immorality because he wants you to be miserable. God forbids it because sexual immorality leads to brokenness, sadness, emptiness, death, and hell. That's serious. So we must remember as, as followers of Christ, we are called to be holy. We are called to be a holy people. We are created to be like God and to imitate Christ as we walk in righteousness and holiness. And here's three quick points that I want you to meditate upon as we run, as we run to the end of our time this morning. If we are to carry out our calling, when I say carry out our calling, if we are to be followers of Christ, united to Christ, if we are to carry out our calling, we must walk in obedience to Christ's commands. We must walk in obedience to Christ's commands. Number two, if we are to carry out our calling, we must take sin seriously. And number three, if we are to carry out our calling, we must understand God's grace. What I mean by understanding God's grace, God's grace does not just save you. Yes, it's by grace we've been saved through faith. This is not of ourselves. This is not our own doing. But it does not just save you. It changes you. Because again, Titus 2, I feel like I've put this up on the screen over and over again, but I love this section. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, but there's not a period there. There's a comma training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So the grace of God doesn't just save you, it changes you. So we must not see just one aspect of grace. One more quote, I had to put it in here, Heath Lambert. Again, the tide will begin to turn in your struggle against pornography, which is a very real problem, not just in the world, but in the church, and all lust, when you begin to grasp forgiving grace and transforming grace as you learn to repent. It begins with repentance. So as we wrap this up here, in Matthew 5, let me just quickly wrap this up. In Matthew 5, Jesus beats the drum of obedience. Not just outward formal obedience, but obedience and trusting in God. Formal rule following is not enough to be pure in God's sight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount and highlights the importance of our hearts a couple of times in the few verses we went over, but he's going to highlight the centrality of our hearts a few chapters later in chapter 15. Look with me in chapter 15. We'll get to this eventually. 
But in chapter 15, it says, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with anyone, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So we see here, our hearts are fickle, our hearts are dirty, our, our hearts need cleansing. And we see that our hearts produce idols. The heart is a tireless machine, a 24-hour factory of idols. As fast as you smash one, your heart cranks out another. I think of the uh, game that there's, I always saw it at Chuck E. Cheese's, the whack-a-mole game. You know, you, you get one and then two pop up. You get those two and then here's another one. So just as you identify one idol, I thank you, God, for exposing this idol. Let me repent of it. And Okay, here I am again, longing and following after something else. And we must realize idols don't wear name tags. We have to be on alert for them. The idols of bitterness, anger, lust, envy do not introduce themselves on Monday morning. Idols teach us to love and please ourselves. But the Bible teaches us to love and please God. So as you struggle in your war, and it is a war against idols, we must continue to look to Him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Remember who our Savior is. God's grace teaches us to rest in Jesus, but as Savior, He also enables us to pursue holiness. And again, let me beat this drum again. As we pursue holiness, we do so together. Proverbs 18 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. So let me encourage you, as you encourage me, to stir one another on towards love and good deeds as the day is approaching, as we persevere together, and as we say, Jesus is Lord. Let us pray.